Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to part three and the conclusion of All Blood Runs Red, the story of Eugene Jacques Boulard, a Georgia boy who had to grow up fast, who followed a dream that his father had given him to France, then became a prize fighter, a French legionnaire, the first African-American fighter pilot in history, the hero of France in two wars, an impresario in Paris's lofty jazz age, a business owner three times over, a friend to many, a spy working for French intelligence, and a hero of French President Charles de Gaulle. Yet in America, the land where people can rise to be whatever they want to be, Bullard and his young brothers and sisters saw their lives destroyed by racism. He became a runaway, lived with gypsies, escaped to Europe, and upon returning to American soil as a decorated war hero, was virtually, with few exceptions, ignored by the media, beaten by club-wielding police after a concert, witnessed soft and hard bias toward himself and his grown daughters, and having once owned multiple profitable businesses in Paris, was limited in his later years due to war injuries and being denied the notoriety he deserved to a variety of vending jobs culminating in operating the elevator in the NBC building in Rockefeller Center in New York City. This is no slight, as anyone over 50 knows, work is work, no matter how you get it. The point I'm trying to make is that a man who had won the French Military Medal of Honor, the highest award given by that country, two Croix de Guerres, 36 other awards of military distinction for his service in two wars as a French legionnaire and a vaunted member of the Lafayette Escadrille, and an American who was personally invited by de Gaulle to be one of three men who would light the flame at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Paris. And now a quiet gentleman and father of two living in an apartment in Harlem with barely a mention in any magazine articles or newspapers, even after landing an appearance on the Today Show, that his life as a black man in America in the 50s provides a fairly accurate picture to any history student of where we were at that time with regard to respect for race and how far we've come today. Today, he would be an absolute hero. And that should tell you that America's come a long way in the right direction. We'll answer a lot of questions here in part three. Why did he return at all? And why New York? 
What happened to Ballard and his daughters after the Nazis entered Paris? Did he ever go back? Was he ever honored? What did he do in New York? What happened to his brothers and sisters? After discovering his history and digging into books, magazine articles, obscure references, and even family trees, I found this story and will give the appropriate thanks in the show notes to the people who deserve the credit. One author in particular stands out, that being Craig Lloyd, who wrote Eugene Billard, Black Expatriate in Jazz Age Paris. If you want a book, that's the one to start with. I think we all would have liked Eugene Billard had we known him. He had a dream to go to France where he could be treated as an equal, and despite all odds, he made it. He always had to deal with his difference in skin color, but in Europe, the outright disrespect that was present in America was not there until he had to deal with some of those same Americans in Europe. Other than missing the family he left behind, I'm sure he had no regrets. In researching and telling the story, he earned my respect in a way few past heroes could. He took the lumps and lived and died with dignity, humor, and grace. To review, Eugene Jacques Boulard was born in 1895 and died in 1961. His incredible feats have been written about by William I. Chivalet and Caroline M. Fannin, and their research was helpful in telling this story, while P.J. Carousella and James W. Ryan published a biography titled The Black Swallow of Death, The Incredible Story of Eugene Jacques Boulard, the world's first black combat aviator. And Craig Lloyd published another biography titled Eugene Boulard, Black Expatriate in Jazz Age Paris. Long before the much-heralded Tuskegee Airmen, Boulard became the first African-American combat pilot seeking active duty during World War I. Jacqueline and Nolita, Boulard's daughters, are 12 and 9 years old in 1936, just after Boulard divorced Marcel in December of 1935. The girls were attending a convent school in Orléans, south of Paris, and getting a good education. By 1939, the Germans had attacked Poland and were preparing to conquer the rest of Europe. Paris was blacked out nightly so as to avoid bombing attacks, and U.S. consulates were urging all Americans to get out of France fast. In 1939, with his daughters aged 15 and 12, and they being, for all practical purposes, French citizens, Ballard did not want to leave Paris, and he was a valuable source for French intelligence since his businesses catered heavily to Germans living in Paris. But his businesses were grinding to a halt. By May of 1940, and with his French intelligence partner Kitty Terrier promising to watch the girls, Ballard joined the 170th again to fight. You've already heard the story of his being struck and wounded by artillery fire, and his travels to Biarritz. What we didn't mention was that at the consulate he had met an old friend who said he would forward all of Eugene's drawings, notes, everything he had in his backpack, to a friend in New York named Ryan Baldwin, who was the founder and head of the American Civil Liberties Union. Eugene would be able to pick them up when he reached New York. That's why he went to New York. There was a line of stragglers escaping the German and Vichy section of France, and Biarritz was the funnel they were all headed toward. There were very few cars on the road at that time. It was mostly people on foot, worn down, tired, and hungry, having left the only homes and lives they knew behind them. Billard recalled a woman who was carrying a dead baby, walking onward as if in a trance. 
he politely, gently commented to her that the baby had gone to heaven. When the woman came back to her senses, she allowed him to borrow a spade from another refugee so he could bury her baby, and he did. The portion of the line of stragglers that he was in finally arrived at the town of Hede and the international bridge to Spain. At the border, Billard encountered an old friend, a former legionnaire, who was now working as a Spanish customs officer. He treated Eugene to a meal and helped run Billard and the group he was with through Spanish customs. The same friend gave Billard a few bottles of wine, which he shared with the group, who were the Levy family, Jews escaping France. One lady in the Levy family initially balked at sharing a bottle of wine, but when Billard said, hey, it's totally appropriate to share microbes, since you're standing on an international bridge, she laughed, the group laughed, and she relented. They soon boarded a train bound for Lisbon when the U.S. ship Manhattan picked up 700 refugees and left on July 12, 1940, arriving at New York Harbor on the 18th of that month, docking at West 18th Street Pier. As Ballard watched the Statue of Liberty appearing in the harbor, all he could think about, according to his diary, was his daughters, and he hoped that when they made it, they'd find a good life in America. The first man he recognized on the pier was Jack Spector, who was awaiting American veterans who were aboard the same ship. Spector had taught Americanism to the foreign-born children of legionnaires fighting in France and must have known Billard's name because he provided hotel rooms for every veteran on the ship except Billard. Back home in the land of the free... He spent his first night in New York at 1829 7th Avenue in the apartment of a Paris acquaintance whom he had helped carry luggage for up off the ship. Within a week, he had found an apartment at 80 East 116th Street, Harlem, which he would call home for the remainder of his life. He was in Spanish Harlem, and there were French hospitals and a French school nearby, and also a Roman Catholic church where sermons were delivered in French. In 1950, there were 40,000 French living in New York City, so his life gravitated in their direction, in Lower Manhattan. Bullard was in bad shape, needing treatment for his injured spine, and still recovering from his 10-month ordeal of fighting and escape, and torn up, worrying over his daughters. Less than a week after arriving in New York, Bullard became a member of the Federation of French Veterans of the Great War, a new organization just formed in 1940, in reaction to the fall of France. A few weeks later, he found and entered the French hospital for treatment of his injured spine and rest. According to later accounts from his daughter Jacqueline, he was very close to a nervous breakdown. One bright moment was brought by his old boxing and French Foreign Legion pal, Bob Scanlon, whom he had last seen on the battlefield and presumed he was dead. Scanlon had made it out of Chartres in one piece, by the summer of 1941, Millard joined France Forever, a New York chapter that supported Charles de Gaulle, and he carried a flag in a New York parade down Fifth Avenue. De Gaulle was present then to meet Mayor LaGuardia at City Hall and spent an hour at the headquarters of France Forever, thanking members, including Bullard. Bullard also stayed in touch with Americans who had fought in France with the help of a fellow American pilot who had also flown in the escadrille, Austin Cretoire who made sure Bullard, who was the only black man who had flown for the escadrille, stayed on the lists for reunions and meetings and attended. 
The reunions took place at the Lafayette Hotel on 9th Street, a little corner of Paris in New York, as one newspaper writer called it. That same report mentioned in 1949 that at that year's reunion, the talk turned toward Brillard. One member remarked that Tommy Hitchcock had asked Brillard why he had come from Georgia to fight the Germans in 1914, and Brillard had answered, Well, I don't rightly know, but it must have been more curiosity than intelligence. Brillard had showed that same journalist his business card, as a vendor of French perfumes. On the line below his name was the phrase, First known Negro military pilot. With Ballard's experience, his savoir-faire, and his humility, combined with his perfect French, he no doubt did very well repping French cologne, which was very popular in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. When Ballard's daughters arrived safely in 1941 in the spring, Ballard took time to see his cousin James Ballard, who had left Richland, Georgia, to live in New York City, and also traveled with the girls to Newport News, Virginia, to see his older sister Pauline and her family. Bullard also took his daughters back to Columbus, Georgia, a hard trip because Bullard had heard that his oldest brother Hector had been lynched for trying to assume ownership of a farm inherited from his maternal grandmother, who was a Creek Indian. White squatters on a peach farm near Fort Valley, Georgia, had hanged him when he insisted on pressing his claim. The old neighborhood where Bullard had played as a boy was gone, turned into a housing project. While he was there, he would no doubt have heard the story of Primus King, a local black barber, who was beaten for trying to vote in a Democrat primary there at the time. Bullard was deeply saddened by the preponderance of racism still on display in the South and returned north with high hopes for New York. But before the 1943 Legionnaires reunion in New York, he received a letter that reminded him that white and color didn't mix at the next Legionnaires function. In the late summer of 1949, Ballard found himself stuck in the middle of one of America's worst shameful moments when he was beaten by police officers in the midst of a violent attack that followed an outdoor concert given by actor, singer, and political activist Paul Robeson near Peekskill, New York, in upper Westchester County, 30 miles north of Harlem. Robeson had been a star football player at Rutgers, the only black player on a white team and was an internationally known recording artist. He used a celebrity to denounce racism, found no help from either political party in America, as the Democrats at that time were leading the charge for segregation, and the Republicans saying little, but at least being the only party to push the civil rights passage through in 1964. Robeson had infuriated Americans by moving to Russia with his wife Essie, and his son Paul Jr. in the 1930s, and openly expressed his love for Russia, while failing to point out Stalin's murdering and mass executions of millions of Russians and Poles and Jews who had gotten in his way. Robeson was openly urging black men to never go to war for America, and became the leading figure of contempt from all sides. He was openly fighting racism, but fighting from the far left side, unlike Dr. Martin Luther King, who came later. When Robeson's third Peekskill concert and rally was announced for August 27, 1949, the militants were ready. A mob composed of American legionnaires, veterans of foreign wars, local negrophobes, and anti-Semites blocked the entrance to the concert and started screaming all the epithets you might expect for blacks and Jews and other assorted slurs 
and started breaking the windshields of cars with stones. Some of the occupants in the cars were dragged out and beaten. 55-year-old Eugene Billard was one of them, suffering eye damage, the reason we see him pictured in the Today Show photo wearing spectacles. Days after the beatings, State District Attorney George Finelli whitewashed the whole affair, praising his police for keeping the peace and stating in writing to New York Governor Dewey that all the people there trying to enter the concert did so with no problem. Dewey was asked to look into it more deeply, but the governor refused, prompting Robeson, Billard, and others to speak openly about the incident. The Truman administration ignored it. A video on YouTube shows police officers beating Billard at the concert. In 1951, Billard returned to Paris and Montmartre with his friend Jocelyn Bingham, whom he had known in the golden years before World War II. He discovered that Bricktop had tried to reopen her club on Rue Fontaine in 1950. But after 20 years of economic depression in Paris, German occupation, and a fragile peace, Montmartre could never again serve as the playground of the rich and famous. Billard then abandoned the idea of returning to Paris, but in 1952, he did work as a translator and advance man for his friend, Louis Armstrong, and his band. In 1959, a friend named Ted Parsons convinced Billard to write his autobiography, and he was introduced to Louise Fox O'Connell, who was a member in Billard's Catholic Church in Harlem. She was the widow of Hollywood writer Richard Connell, whose short story, The Most Dangerous Game, we did as a two-episode feature in our show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, this past year. Look it up. It's one of our most popular short stories. Funny how everything connects, isn't it? The 69-year-old woman became an immediate fan and friend of Boulard's. She paid for a typist and later spent the better part of a decade to find a publisher. She never asked for a dime. It took her six years to convince Ebony Magazine to write an article. In 1960, Charles de Gaulle, the president of France, paid a state visit to the United States and said that one of the first things he wanted to do was to meet and personally thank Eugene Jacques Boulard for his service to France in both wars. The White House staff had never heard of Eugene Jacques Boulard, and they were sent scrambling to locate him. They finally found him living in New York City, and plans were made for de Gaulle to travel to New York to participate in a ceremony honoring war veterans who fought in France. And de Gaulle met personally with Billard, the two speaking in French, de Gaulle hugging Billard and thanking him for his incredible service. Finally, Marlborough House, in 1972, agreed to publish Carousel and Ryan's The Black Swallow of Death version of Billard's autobiography. And this brings us back to December 22, 1959, at the NBC Today Show studio where Dave Garraway is asking Eugene Billard to explain how he has earned all those medals that Garraway had mounted on a display board for the viewers to see. As the camera closed in, Garraway and Billard, the live audience, and the viewers watching at home knew that whatever Eugene Billard could say in 10 minutes couldn't begin to tell the incredible story of this hero's life. Sitting in his apartment in Harlem, New York, in 1959, now in his mid-sixties, in failing health, with stomach cancer, Eugene Billard was finally taking the advice of friends and recalling the first 45 years of his life, putting down on paper the names, 
dates, and reminiscences collected from his diaries and memoirs. He recalled his youth in Columbus, Georgia, his father and mother, and the courage they imparted in him, his time in Scotland, his prize-fighting, performing vaudeville in Great Britain and across the continent, his fighting for France in World War I, and the first American-born black to become a combat pilot. He remembered the years in Paris, the golden years, remembering entertainers like Louis Armstrong, Ada Louise Bricktop Smith, Josephine Baker, friends both black and white who were always faithful, and patrons of his gym and bar, and boxers and legionnaires who were always showing up in unexpected places from the battlefields to the city of New York. He recalled the anger of the French toward the warring Germans twice in 25 years as they tried to crush France and her people. He claimed, as he wrote, that his wife had died in 1936, but in reality, that was only in his mind, as she actually died in 1961, the same year he did. At one point, after recalling all he could, he wrote, I think I've covered all the bases. During his life, the French showered Eugene with honors, and in 1954, he was one of the three men chosen to relight the everlasting flame at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Paris. In October of 1959, he was made a Knight of the Legion of Honor, the highest-ranking order and decoration bestowed by France. On August 18, 1961, Brillard entered the Metropolitan Hospital in New York City for treatment. He was given transfusions and tried experimental drugs, but they couldn't stop the cancer. Louise Fox O'Connell was there with him the last day of his life, October 12th, when Ballard pulled himself out of a difficult breathing spell long enough to tell her, Don't fret, honey. It's easy. He had fought hard, the same way he had fought all his life. A close friend would later write, He died as he had lived, game as hell. In the epilogue to his book, Eugene Ballard, a black expatriate in Jazz Age Paris, Lloyd writes, Ballard's two lives, the one in America and the other in France, illustrates the colossal spiritual, social, and economic waste to this nation caused by the tenacious denial to black people of their inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's never been said better. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're asking you to consider for a moment becoming a subscriber to our show. The cost is only $2.99 a month, about the same cost as a blended coffee at most places that sell it. It's easy to listen to my shows every week, shows that I've been doing for three years now, and it's free. Just like me, you figure that somebody else is paying the bill for the entertainment and it's okay to take a free ride. But the truth is, advertisers come and go, and very few people take the time to subscribe. That $2.99 a month isn't that much to you, but it's a big deal for my shows because it helps to pay hosting fees, app fees, and all the expenses 1001 occurs on this end, researching, writing, interviewing from a studio I rent hourly, narrating, editing, marketing, and distributing these shows in order to keep growing. You might be a fan of all our 1001 shows or just 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It doesn't matter. 
The subscription fee helps me keep them coming. So take 10 minutes and go to the link in the show notes and see the premium member subscription area. If just one out of every five of you takes this moment to do it, it'll be a huge help. Be that person and show your appreciation for what we're doing here. Subscribing makes you a premium member and supporter of our show. And with that, you get the satisfaction of knowing that your monthly $2.99 is helping to support a family-friendly show that offers an amazing mixture of historical stories and drama, along with classic literature. Unlike many of today's podcasts, which are full of explicit words and material, we offer content that teaches history, uncovers mysteries, probes the mind, tells of legends, and brings past heroes to life. The knowledge gained from being a fan of 1001 is immense. It has been for me. For me, it's a fantastical journey, and each story takes me down another path to adventure and learning. You all know how much I appreciate your listening. Now's the time to take a minute and show your appreciation. Thanks for being fans. We'll be back next week.